following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. We continue our trek through Isaiah, chapter 56, this morning. Isaiah 56. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of a foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. You understand what he's talking about, what what these two people are, the son of a foreigner and the eunuch? Now, God's going to answer the eunuch first, although he spoke second, and then he's going to answer the son of the foreigner second. Listen to what he says. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me, And hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. For someone with no children, there was a shame attached to that after a manner. And the Lord says, for those of you that trust me and follow my ways, you will have better than sons in the everlasting place. Verse 6, And also, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer. For whom? Listen to that. All nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Does that sound like any New Testament text that you know of? I have sheep of another fold to bring in. Or Ephesians chapter 2, you were strangers and foreigners, but now you are fellow citizens in the household of God. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, just because we're far off from Israel, we need not to fear, as these were indicating in the earlier verses of the chapter. Now we turn the page, as it were, to verse 9. All you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind, They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Now, these watchmen are the watchmen of Israel, the teachers of Israel, the priests, the scribes, the the people who are supposed to keep the law in their mouth and be able to share it with others at at the drop of a hat. And yet they were like sleeping dogs, useless for guard dogs not telling the people what they needed to, not warning them away from sin. Yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. And they are shepherds, 
who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain from his own territory. Come, one says, I will bring wine and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. Those are the ones who seek their own things, not the things of God, not the things of others. Would you join me in prayer, please, before we come to our special music time? Our Heavenly Father, we exhorted ourselves earlier to remember to watch unto prayer, to be cognizant of those things that you have done and answer to our requests. And for one of those things, we want to give special thanks this morning for our sister Susan and the good test results that came back. We were uh, admittedly somewhat fearful that bad results may be found, but you answered our request that that would not be the case, and so we are grateful to you for that. Thank you, Lord. Now we pray that you would preserve our sister as she has to go through all the rest of whatever it is that she has to do with the treatment course that is going to be assigned for her. Lord, this month we have a number of folks who have celebrated birthdays or will many who celebrate anniversaries or have already, and Lord, we thank you for them. We pray that your hand will be upon them and guide them in these days. Lord, help us to use those calendars and directories to remember one another on such special occasions. We pray, Lord, for our dear friend Darius and for the summer training program that he is about to embark upon. Pray that you'll bless and keep him and his brother as well. Lord, we pray for our sister Kim's father, We don't know an update about how he is, but we pray for his health and well-being, especially his spiritual well-being in these days. And I think, Lord, of contacts that I had this week who received a small portion of your word, some seed, something relevant to their circumstance, and I pray that that seed would bear fruit. May May it grow. May you send somebody to water it and for the growth to increase. We look to you for that, Lord, and those folks. We pray for a friend of ours named Dennis who needs to be encouraged in Christ to keep pressing on despite some difficulties that he's facing and worries that he has. We pray that he will look to you. We pray for JL and the children that are gone. We pray for her sister particularly who was widowed some time ago and the children that are left behind. Lord, we ask that you will bless and keep them and it reminds me to pray for another a widow who I encountered earlier this morning who was in the neighborhood here around the church. Lord, I pray for her and the children that you would watch out for them and give them grace and mercy and peace and every provision that they might need to make the days go more smoothly for them. Father, we pray for Uh, two men named Paul that we have not had updates on really, but uh, one near, one far. You know their condition, one with COVID, one who was in a very bad way, uh, seemed like at the end, near the end of his life. And we pray that both know Christ and, and if they don't, that they will very, very soon. We pray, Lord, for our sister churches in this area in Southeast Michigan. There are many who are making every effort to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to baptize and teach them according to the Great Commission. And we remember them, Lord, just some by name that we know personally. We can't mention all the churches. We don't even know them all uh, that are following your word. 
but we pray for them. We pray for Calvary Baptist and Tri-Lakes and certainly FBC and Howell and Hiawatha and Faithway and other churches around as well. Lord, we pray for our missionaries as well today. Watch over each one of them, Lord, from France to the United States to all over the place, missionaries who travel in various locations, those in South America, those in Florida, Lord, those uh, who minister in the Middle East, those in Africa, New Zealand, and Lord, just all of them, we ask that you would bless and keep them. Soon we will meet a new missionary family, and we pray for the Shrocks. We ask that you would guide us about uh, their uh, connection to our church and uh, help us to discern about what your desire would be about that. Lord, we pray for upcoming this upcoming couple of weeks that are busy for Jansen and for myself, and we ask that you would watch over the ministries and learning that we are un, uh, undertaking to accomplish in these days. We thank you. Praise your name. God bless your name. You are worthy. For all those reasons we looked at this morning, we call upon ourselves to bless the Lord, O my soul. Let all that is within us and in our church and in our families bless the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the name of Christ. I invite you this morning to turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, please. We continue our series. This will be part 2 in the book of Titus. We're in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. The title of our message is Qualified Elders. So I'm speaking about the ministry that I'm supposed to have and uh, that these elders that Titus was to appoint are supposed to have and by extension all elders in churches who follow the scriptures, and they all should. But uh, let's look at this, uh, this section here and try to discern what we can and also maybe be a help to some who uh, have struggled with uh, church selection process or uh, perhaps uh, some who are listening to this service from afar that either have that difficulty or are even pastors who may watch and wonder uh, how do we work on uh, selecting uh, another a new elder in the church or raising up people in the church who are qualified for that work. And so we'll look at that together this morning. We trust the Lord to help us as we begin in verse number five. Paul says, for this reason I left you in Crete. I'll describe that a little bit in just a moment to give you some background. That you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. It is this, elder's, this kind of elder's qualification and abilities that allow him to take on the task, which is next listed, why does he need these qualifications? Why must he be able to convict those who contradict and teach with sound doctrine? Why, verse 10, because there are many 
insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped. This is to protect whole households, to protect the church from false doctrine. So this is a crucial element of the church. Now, let me give you a little bit of background about the island of Crete. Today, Crete is the most populated island of Greece. It forms the southern boundary of the Aegean Sea. So if you think of your Mediterranean world, the map in your mind, you can see it almost in your mind, can't you? You can see Cyprus off closer to Israel, and you can see Crete there south of Greece and several other islands in the middle of the, of the Mediterranean. But it is 3,200 plus square miles. Think about that, 3,200 square miles. Paul says, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders where? In every city. Now just get an idea of the scope of that task, the scope of that task. If I have done my mathematics correctly, you could think about a rectangular area of 80 by 40 miles in your mind. Take the southern border of Michigan with Ohio, not not the Indiana part just now, but with Ohio, that 80 miles roughly, and from there up 40 miles to Detroit, Ann Arbor, Jackson, Albion, that whole rectangle, that whole section of southeast Michigan, that's equivalent area that Paul is telling Timothy, I want you to go to every city there and appoint elders and and set those churches in order. Now, you know, the island is not actually a perfect rectangle, obviously. It's 160 miles long, which is like the whole southern border of the state of Michigan, and at the widest, 35 miles. So that would be quite a trek back and forth and up and down for Titus to carry on the work that was needed there. All of those cities, all those villages, all the rural sections would need churches and pastors to serve those communities. You think about that area today, how many churches exist in that area of southeast Michigan? A lot. Now, maybe there's more population here than there was in Crete at that time, likely, but still, there's a lot of work there to be done. The island at that time was under Roman rule, and so Titus was in a familiar kind of environment there as far as the culture goes and ministering there in the churches. The churches in the cities were not fully operational. They were, as, as it indicates here, they were to be set in order. So we sometimes say the church is not ordered yet or was not in order. It was out of order. It had not gotten into the order that God has designed for the church, and they were lacking in some areas So he says to set in order the things that are lacking. Evidently what had happened was that the Apostle Paul, he got out of his first imprisonment in Rome and spent a couple of years ministering after that, like 62 to 64 AD, and then he was put into prison again, and that's when he was killed in that second imprisonment. But during that time of freedom, he had gone around and done some more ministry, and one of those ministries was on the island of Crete. And he had gone with Titus to do that ministry, Titus being one of his trusted co-workers. And we're not going to go look at all the verses about Titus. Maybe some other time we we will do that to remind ourselves of all that he was involved in. But he went about and uh, began evangelizing, as he did, as his habit was, in all the places where he went. 
and started little churches. But the churches did not have elders installed in them. In addition, they were not well established in sound Christian teaching. So we might think about a church like, uh, our, well, our church plant in Howell, for example, before it became a functioning church with a membership, with uh, self-supporting financially. Uh, we knew what its doctrine was going to be when we started. There was an advantage there. We had the doctrinal statement. We basically just took Fellowship Bible Church Ann Arbor and plugged Howell in there and just carried on with the work. So that was fine. We knew this, the, the doctrine that we had been given. We just passed it right down the line to the next church. But before the church had voted for a pastor, before there was a membership, the church was somewhat out of order. And that was okay for the time because it was new. No problem. But at some point, the churches have to become mature and have sound doctrine and have teachers who will teach that doctrine. They need to have a pastor or a pastor so they can have a full-time resident teacher in the church to teach healthy doctrine. You cannot long have a church without those things, a pastor and sound teaching. Okay? You might have too few deacons. You might have no piano players. You might have no pews and no hymnals, but you can still have a church as long as you have some of the basic skeletal framework of it. This is crucial in every single generation. If you have a church that doesn't have a pastor or doesn't have sound doctrine, let me just plant it in your mind. You have an emergency. You have an emergency. You don't just sit there as a church without a pastor for two, three, four years and just say, well, get somebody into the pastorate. Even if they're imperfect, even if they're, you think, too young, even if they're not perfectly, if they meet these qualifications, then they're qualified. Okay? But it's an emergency. I want to put that in your mind. It's a, it's a desperate situation when there is no shepherd over the flock of God and people can get all... Uh, out, of, uh, out of sorts, as it were. Without a pastor, without sound teaching, the church is not in order. Now, this passage here, look at it carefully. It says that you should set in order things that are lacking and appoint what? Who? Elders. Elders. Now, we can be very clear about this in our study of Scripture, that elders equals pastors equals overseers. Another word for overseer, which you might have in your Bible, is bishop. Okay? That's the old King James way of saying that same word, episkopos, overseer, somebody who is administrating or has oversight of the church. The word pastor is the word shepherd. Okay? The word shepherd. So pastors, overseers, elders, bishops, under shepherds, if you will, all are the same. All are the same. One of the pastor's functions is to feed the flock, the word of God, preaching and teaching that word. He's also tasked to lead, to guard, to guide, to protect the flock of God's people. Now, let me just justify that briefly. We don't have time to go into a greatly detailed study, but I want to do this because there's so much confusion out there today as to what are the proper offices for the church. Without any doubt... The, the titles that I've gone over all point to the same office. 
The different terms refer to various aspects of the ministry of the pastor. So elder, that doesn't mean he's old. That means that he is spiritually mature. Okay, He is a pastor, a shepherd. That means he gives spiritual care. He feeds and leads a flock. He's, he's a bishop or overseer because he has that leadership or oversight role of the church. So the words focus on different maybe aspects of the person or the office, the work that is being done. And man-made hierarchical distinctions beyond that are just that, man-made. Priests, prelates, bishops, popes, cardinals are just man-made offices. I was reading somebody this past week who was saying that well, it took some time through for, for, in history for the distinction to be made between elders and pastors or elders and bishops. And that's only true from a secular perspective. The, the passage of time does not change this book. Okay? This book is fixed and the teaching is fixed and it does not indicate any difference or allowance of a historical development of all kinds of this what I call ecclesiological cruft stuff that's added on to the Bible. God has a simple plan in mind for the church, and uh, it does not include having people who are pastors and then a different group with different qualifications who are elders, and then a different group of different qualifications for bishops and popes and cardinals and all of those things. So I am willing to say that a church that thinks that it's okay to have elders who rule the church and then pastors who are hired by the elders and are different than them, that is not biblically ordered. That is out of order. Okay? Now, I know a lot of churches do that, and uh, you know I'm not going to stick my nose into their business except to teach what I think the Bible teaches here. Because... You know, the pastor has to have certain qualifications, and the church may even be very careful about that. But then the church has elders, and they're raised up from hopefully spiritually mature men in the church, but sometimes businessmen or others who are successful, and they don't meet the same qualifications as the pastors of the church. There's, there are churches with elders who do not and cannot teach the word. Those aren't real elders. You understand what I'm saying? The First Timothy chapter 3 passage is very clear. An elder or pastor must be able to teach. And if he's been given that ability and gift, First Peter chapter 4 says he must use that gift. He can't just let it sit idle. Okay? So you can't have elders that are not teaching the Bible. Okay? They must be able to and they must be exercising that, that function. Okay, so I, I do feel strongly about that because at the root of church problems is the uh, mishandling of God's word, even at the leadership level, which sets them off on a wrong path to begin with. You don't want to do that. You don't want to be wrong before you even start. You want to try to get things right as right as you can from the beginning. Now, uh, look at Titus. Uh, we saw 1.5 says, elders... There are elders in every city, supposed to be. 
And then look down at verse 7. For a bishop or overseer must be blameless. He's talking about the same group of people, thus justifying my statement that we have elders and bishops being synonymous. Uh, you have also 1 Timothy chapter 3, if any man desires the office of bishop, and then he's talking about the qualification of elders, same thing here. Acts chapter 20, Paul calls for the elders of the church in verse 17, and then he says to them, take heed to the flock over which God has made you overseers to shepherd the flock of God. They're all three words in those short number of verses, Acts 20, 17, and then verse uh, 28, I think it is, that has all of those words, those three words in it, and you see the, the elder who has got an overseeing function and a shepherding function. Same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Peter calls the elders shepherds. He tells them that they must shepherd the flock of God. Now, Titus, we move on then from that notion to this, that Titus was given the job to appoint mature Christian men to lead the church. But then you ask yourself this question, perhaps. Aren't pastors the highest human authority in the church? Uh, in, in a sense, that's true. There are no higher prelates in the church, according to Scripture. So how does Titus go around to churches appointing pastors in those churches? Just who does Titus think he is doing that? I mean, how would you like it, or how would I like it if somebody came from the outside and said, I'm appointing a new pastor for Fellowship Bible Church? Uh, no, <laughs> that's not how it works, dear friends, not today. Uh, once the church is up and running and established, then the church is responsible to select its pastor and to examine men for ordination and, <clears throat> and, and recognize them in their ministry and then raise them into those places of service in the church, perhaps we should say lower them into their place of service in the church just to help us so that we don't get a big head when we're at this pulpit in the church, in that position. So he was to appoint these guys. No higher prelates in the church. Well, what's the answer then to this question? How does, who does he think he is? Well, the Bible tells us who he is. He is a personal representative of the Apostle Paul. Okay? So Paul is a personal representative of Jesus, Okay, Jesus appoints Paul. Paul appoints in his stead Titus because Paul, for some reason, has to leave or he's in jail and can't finish the work that he had started out to do on the island of Crete. And so Titus is not a pastor. He's not some kind of ecclesiastical official that exists today. He is an apostolic representative. He represents the Apostle Paul as it were, a substitute for Paul, who is a minister of Christ, and Christ is the one who is planting and building his church in Crete. Paul was using Titus to kickstart the churches in Crete. You know, if you have an area with no church, what do you do? How do you start? It's like a chicken and egg problem, isn't it? What comes first, the pastor or the church? The chicken or the egg? Well, you just have to break through that chicken and egg problem by getting the work going. Once it gets moving, then it can assume its normal operational status. So a missionary may go to an area, establish a church, and he may become the pastor. Or another model, a missionary may go to the church, raise or the area, raise up a church, 
get it you know, kind of initially organized, be kind of the first pastor, train some men in the ministry, prepare them to take it over, and then he moves on to the next place after they're established in the leadership of the church. This doesn't happen usually in weeks. It takes usually years, sometimes decades for that kind of thing to work depending on the field, depending on the workers, depending on God's grace and its operation in that place. Then when the church is functional, it's able to select its elders and its deacons and to then for those church leaders to keep the church moving in the right direction. So uh, because there's no church to begin with, you can't have the church vote on who its pastor is. You've just got to start somewhere and get everything organized in an appropriate fashion. Now, the rest of the message really has to do with who are the kinds of men who are qualified for this work. And what I've done here is really divided into three segments. The first segment is that a pastor or elder, again, we use those terms interchangeably, must be above reproach. Look at verse 6. If a man is blameless... Look at verse 7. For a bishop must be what? Blameless or above reproach. Irreproachable is the idea of the word. It means he is not credibly charged with any wrongdoing. Somebody who's been arraigned before a judge and convicted of a crime is not above reproach. Uh, Somebody who... Uh, his, is an adulterer, would not be above reproach. Proverbs 6, 32 and 33 says his shame and reproach will not be wiped away. From a positive perspective, this phrase above reproach means that he's held in high respect. It's a word that not only describes the requirement for a pastor, but guess what? Part of the benefit of teaching this passage is not just that I get to preach at myself and make sure that I meet all these qualifications and help other young men who are coming up into ministry or churches who want to review these qualifications, but it also helps us to remember that some of these qualifications simply are the qualifications of mature Christians. Do you think it's okay for you to be reproachable? But the pastor, he's got to be above all that. You know, he's... He's special, and uh, we're allowed to, you know, kind of mix it up a little bit. No, the Scripture is very clear. In the end, God, well, Paul says his ministry is to develop people in maturity so that they will stand before the throne of Christ without reproach or blameless in him. 1 Corinthians 1.8, Colossians 1.22, both of those passages say, you all... Not just me, you all are headed in that direction to the above reproach category. So, obviously this applies to pastors and and deacons as well, 1 Timothy 3.10. And verse 7 reiterates that it's necessary for the pastor to be this way, but may I say that it's also necessary for you to be this way. Because if that's your destination, you know, we will see him... We will be like him. Well, if we're moving in that direction, well, let's, let's move in that direction. Let's, let's get to be that kind of character, and that's what we should be in our, 
in our lives. So some of these characteristics are not really super special. They're just ex- expectations, like basic um, you know, requirements, prerequisites, if you will. Please listen to the word. Anybody out there that may be not paying attention? Yeah, I have a sense that perhaps uh, you know, we might be losing focus, attention uh, for a moment. Let's get back to the word. The man is a steward of God, the Bible says. He's responsible because God has entrusted him as a household manager, a steward of his things. Just think about that for a moment. The pastor is entrusted with the care, protection, guidance, management of what? His local business? The church. The church. This is a huge responsibility that transcends earthly dimensions. This is the flock of God. This is not the flock of men or people. It's his sheep, his lambs that need care. This is a huge task. Now, Christians generally also are called to be stewards, stewards of your possessions, stewards of your wealth, uh, stewards of any area of giftedness that you have, First Peter 4.10 says, any man has received the gift, he must exercise it. He must display that manifold grace of God in his life. That's stewardship, but certainly if Christians are expected to be stewards, then their pastors must be expected to be stewards. And we're stewards of something that is a very holy and transcendent deposit primarily. Everything comes out of here, out of the word of God. And this is not a job that you just, you know, take to, uh, you know, to try out or fill time between jobs or something like that. It's not. This is a calling from God that is very, very serious. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if any man destroys the church of God, him, God, will destroy That tells you don't mess around in this sacred desk. Don't mess around in the life of the church, because if you do, God will mess with you. And I don't think you want that. No, we don't want that. But that's how God, that's how seriously God takes the church. This is serious business. This isn't, you know, laughy, jokey time. This is really, I mean, this is real life. You think, I just went to a a funeral yesterday for a fellow that I was acquainted with remotely and to support some of his friends and family members. And he's gone. Now, I'm not sure where he stood with the things of God. I know that he attended a church, and I, th- I thank God for that. But, you know, that's, all, that's the end of all of us. And so, yes, it is profitable to go to the house of mourning because that's where all of our end is, and we need to pay attention to that. We're not just here to pass time or to merely enjoy ourselves. We're here to honor God, and we're here to share the message of Christ with others so that they will come to faith in him and have an eternal home in heaven and not an eternal condemnation. This is the overarching requirement. A pastor must be above reproach. That fleshes out in two directions, and Paul makes it very clear. There are negative qualifications, if you will, and 
positive qualifications. We look at the handful of negative qualifications first, then we'll try to touch on some of the positive ones, and we will be finished for the morning. So hang in there as we think again about these qualifications. <clears throat> Sometimes people have come to me and said, I'm in this church and such and such is happening. The pastor is doing this or that, and uh, we can look down this list of qualifications and put check marks and X marks by the ones that aren't being fulfilled and say, well, listen, either he has to change or you have to change where you're going to worship God because you're not in a place that is pleasing to God at this time. So I pray that I will fill all of these to the fullest human extent possible and that those listening also will be in churches where the same is occurring. Now, I don't put all these in, um, what can I say, uh, textual order here. I've, I've rearranged them because Paul talks about some positive, then some negative, then some positive again. I've just put all the positive, kind of pulled them out, put them together, put all the negative uh, qualifications together just for our organizing our thinking here. First of all, he says, negatively speaking, let's go to... Um, Verse 6, if a man is blameless, a husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. There's the first uh, negative. Children not accused of debauchery or rebelliousness. Now, this obviously applies to the father as well. I mean, you're not going to say, well, it's okay for the father to be insubordinate, but not the kids, obviously. Now, some translations actually make it sound like this applies to the fathers and not the children. So there's some debate about how to properly translate this, mostly with the punctuation, but we won't get hung up on that because it does apply to both uh, cases, I think, children and to the parents. Now, I take it that the children are to be at least good citizens, at least good citizens. They have been brought up right. Of course, there may be some bumps along the way. We all know that in our own lives, teenage years. Young, young adulthood sometimes, but the general idea is that dad leads the home well enough that the children have been trained properly. They're not debauched, meaning reckless, immoral, abandoned behavior. They, they aren't prodigals. They've been trained properly. Uh, they're not insubordinate or rebellious, unruly, un, you know, not subject to authority. Verse 10 says, there are many insubordinate. Those are the kind of people that the pastor needs to work with to get them to become not that way. So he needs to be able to demonstrate he can do that with the children in his own home. Secondly, the pastor himself, it says, must not be, verse 7 now, self-willed, arrogant, stubborn. A selfish person is bent on pleasing themselves and therefore is not qualified to minister the gospel. How can you be a representative of the ultimately unselfish Christ if, you're not, if you don't have that kind of character trait yourself? It doesn't fit. Thirdly, the pastor, the elder, must not be quick-tempered. He's not inclined to be angry. Anger is a last resort, not a first stop. These are all soul-searching elements for me, my friends, as I preach them to myself and to you. Fourth item, 
It says in verse number 7, not given to wine, not a drunkard. Now for sure, this means somebody addicted to alcohol is disqualified. Disqualified. I mean, how, how would you like... How would you like to get on an airplane at Detroit Metro Airport knowing that the pilot just drank a few? That's happened before. You know, that's really strange that guys think they're going to get away with that. That has happened before. Why would you put your, your, your life into the hands of a drunk? He's not thinking straight, not thinking properly. Same, same thing in any profession. I mean, it's, 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 it's unprofessional to be getting up in the morning and starting your drinking habit already, to be going to, to, to work already on the bottle. So uh, somebody addicted to wine or a drunkard is not even close to qualified. I couple this with another teaching from Leviticus 10. In Leviticus 10, you remember that two of the sons of Aaron were burnt to a crisp because they offered strange fire to the Lord. They were killed because they did not worship in the way God prescribed. And after that portion, it seems evident to me that they were in part guilty of that because they were drunk. In that passage in Leviticus 10.9, it says, if you're coming to the temple to, to lead to Aaron, your sons, the priests, no alcohol. Zero. Okay? Zero. Now, I have never had a struggle with this, a desire for this, alcohol. And I'm not saying this to puff myself up. I'm saying, okay, I'm, I'm clear on this issue for sure. I don't have to really do any soul searching here. On some of the other ones, I, I have to think, make sure that my character and my desires are right in line with the Lord. But you cannot afford, if you're a pastor, to cloud your mind with alcohol. And when does that start? The first drink. It doesn't start after two or three or five. You cannot afford to do that. Okay? And I advise the same for all believers. There is no necessity for you to have alcoholic drink in your life at all. And you will thank me later if you're in that now and you get rid of it. You have some at home? Dump it. And your children will thank you too. Okay? That's my advice for you, from me, uh, to, 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 from somebody who has been very happy, no need to have alcohol to have a nice life. It's just, we have so much to be thankful for. We don't need substances to make us happy, you know, unless we have some kind of mental illness that is, you know, diagnosed by a doctor and we have some, something that needs fixing. I mean, listen, just like you can have kidney failure, you can have Brain failure, yes? Yeah, so you might need to have some assistance. Now, I don't know what that all entails. I don't know what the chemicals are up there. I don't know how that thing works. But you certainly don't need alcohol to make yourself right before God or feel better or happy or enjoy life or whatever. Think of Psalm 103. We have so much to praise God for. Anyway, back to the text. Verse 7. The pastor also must not be violent. Well, that kind of seems <laughs> kind of seems obvious, doesn't it? I mean, 
You know, I mean, sometimes the pastor might feel like punching somebody's lights out, but maybe shouldn't do that. I mean, that's not nice. Is it Jackson? No. Not without a warning. Oh, okay. <laughs> At least give him a few seconds' notice, huh? Yeah, so not violent. Not a bully. Uh, but sometimes, see, what happens is somebody can start out well, but what does power do to people? What does standing up in front of a group of people do to somebody's ego? Puffs them up, and they begin to falter in this area and maybe fall back to old habits or something. Uh, there's, no, there's no getting away with churlish or boorish behavior. I had to put those words in. I love those words. Churlish or boorish behavior. Look them up sometime if you don't know the meaning. Uh, but it's basically not violent, not a bully. Now, finally, he's also not greedy for money, which could either mean he has a shameless greed for money or he is interested in dishonest gain. You know, the... Uh, the five-finger discount kind of gain, the embezzling kind of gain, or, or he's just shameless. You know, he just tells the church, look, I need a, I need a raise, um, you know, or I'm leaving, something like that. Such people are not fit to administer the church because, why, the church collects money, it disperses funds to support God's work, and a greedy person inevitably is going to get into twisting that function of the church to line their own pocket. Too many church treasurers have gotten involved in that or deacons who are helping the church to manage its finances, and it's a sad state of affairs, the embezzlement that happens in the church office. Why? Why do that? And inevitably, when you're caught, it's jail or it's certainly shame and embarrassment or worse, and it's just terrible. So not greedy for money. Now, the positive qualifications, and there are seven, eight, or nine of these uh, in the text. First of all, the pastor has to be a husband of one wife. Okay, Obviously, no polygamy here. Um, the language, however, makes it obvious that we're talking about a male. Do I have to define that? That's M-A-L-E. Okay, Somebody born with the biology of a male. Uh, who is required to fulfill the job of a pastor. A woman cannot be the husband of one female. Okay? We're not giving any space to the redefinition of marriage that's happening out in society because that's just, that's just sophistry. That's just made-up words. That's just pretend. Marriage is marriage. It's between a man and a woman. God made them to fit together. Okay? It's obvious. But... Sinners take obvious things and they twist them and make them non-obvious and take the right and make it wrong and take the wrong and make it right and the, the bad for good and the good for bad and all that. We're not going down that path by any stretch of anybody's imagination. So the man, so the pastor has to be a man. That's all. That's very simple. That's what God has assigned for the, the gender roles of, of, of men as part of it in the, in the church. In the, in the home, there's a similar dichotomy or distinction between the roles of husbands and wives and so on. Now, a man who is this way, who is the husband of one wife, verse 6 says, evidences that by 
the fact that he made a wise choice of a spouse. He has not divorced or been in adultery. In short, the text says he is a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Now, some have taken this to mean that if you're not married, you're not qualified. Now, that would be a safe thing to do, especially given the scandals that have happened in other churches regarding celibate men. Um, I think I think the result of that policy is pretty obvious if you sit and think about it. What what is going on? What kind of people are you self-selecting or putting into a ministry where there's a temptation for them to go awry? So yes, there is extra um, uh, investigation perhaps necessary for a man who is not yet married. Why is he not yet married? Does he have some flaw in, in character? Excuse me, can he, can he not live with somebody else? Does he have you know, super high expectations that nobody can meet that might be a suitable spouse for him? Uh, does he have some wrong priorities, some perversion in his heart that would disqualify him, Te- uh, temptations of a sexual nature, or is unable to live with another person? All those would be disqualifying. So it's important to consider a man's marital background as part of the qualifications of the pastor. Secondly, he must have faithful children. We've touched on this already. Um, Some translations come out and say that he must have believing children. Others, that they must be faithful in some perhaps lesser way than saving faith in Christ. Okay, This is something that all pastors have a struggle with at some point, I think. Many. Um, the Bible is convincing to me that I cannot guarantee that my three boys will come to faith in Christ. Okay, I'm not an Arminian that thinks that if I just apply enough arm twisting, I'll get the job done. That's not how it works. Okay, so I understand that, and thus I can't say that every pastor has to have all believing children. Does that make sense? If that were the case. I mean, how, how could you be a pastor if you have young children that haven't come to faith yet, for example? Um, or what if you have you know, several children and some of them are believers and some are not? What do you do then? But I just spoke with probably two weeks ago a pastor who you don't know, who's very far away from this church, who has a struggle with one of his teenage sons. And he's wondering, am I still qualified? So I walked through this passage with him and just looked at the situation and, and encouraged him. And uh, in this particular case, there was no reason for us to suggest that he should be disqualified from the ministry, but he wanted an outsider's objective opinion on it to, to make sure. So I commend him for that. He's concerned about those things. But these things bother our souls like you wouldn't believe. Okay? I mean, we're responsible, especially for the care of our little flock, our family, but then the whole flock altogether. And when you see people living, your own children, or people in the church living in obvious disobedience, not doing what, making poor decisions, doing, I'll just say it, dumb stuff. Like, why? You know, we don't want that for our church family, our children. 
Thirdly, the pastor must be hospitable. Now, you're not off the hook, my friends, because again, the Bible says all Christians are to be hospitable. Be hospitable without grumbling, 1 Peter says to us, but especially true of the pastors. It's, I, I've, I, this is an interesting one for me to think through because when I was growing up, we just n- almost never did hospitality in our home. We would have family over several times a year for holidays, and that was about it. So I did not grow up accustomed to having missionaries and people and church folks and just neighbors and all you know, over at our house. But my heart rejoices in that sort of thing today and has since I've, well, for many, many years. It was exampled to me by our former pastor who was to be greatly commended for that work that he did, hospitality. Um, pastors who don't have people to their homes... Uh, that's one of those X marks, okay? It needs to be corrected. We just delight to have people in our home. It just, it just is life. It's, it's, it's our crown of rejoicing. It's awesome to have people in the home. And I hope you don't absent yourself from that kind of fellowship, either in our home or we from your home or whatever, because it's a great blessing to be able to share God's goodness and care uh, for us with each other. Uh, number four, I think, we're on. He also, the pastor, must be a lover of what is good. Uh, referring back to that uh, statement in the bulletin, you know, the pastor does not laugh at or show affinity for things that are evil. Um, things that are bad are not his delight, okay, of whatever sort those might be. Fifth, he's self-controlled. He's sober-minded. He is prudent By the way, you're supposed to be that way. Everybody, all Christians are supposed to be that way. Prudent, thoughtful, behaving in moderation, not given to um, irrational thinking, you know, not doing things and not knowing why you're doing them. Does that make sense? I don't know why I did that. Well, why did you do it? You should stop and think before you do something so that you do something with thought. So you be sober-minded. That's the thing we develop into as we come up in years. Somebody that's not given to conspiracy thinking or bouncing from one thing to another or unstable or impetuous. He thinks through issues carefully. That is a mark of a pastor, an overseer. Uh, Number six, upright. He's upright. He's just. He's basically godly along with the next one. He's pious. He holds to the highest standard of righteousness. And you know the, the person that he holds to the highest standard? Himself, himself, yes. He is troubled about sin in his life, about anything that is displeasing to God. He wants to be full of good works. He wants to honor God. He's left his life prior to to salvation. All that sin is gone. It's behind. He's getting away from that. Now, will he be perfect? (laughs) No, I mean, if that were the case, goodbye, you know. I wouldn't be qualified. No, the general pattern of his life follows biblical morality. Exactly. Incline my heart to fear your name. Keep my feet from the paths of sin, O Lord. Lead me not into temptation. We looked at that just a couple of weeks ago. That's what our desire is. We don't want to go there. We've been there too many times already. It's a... a, (laughs) 
It's a rerun we don't want to have to go through. Spare us, God, from that. Almost finally here, he's self-controlled, he's disciplined, he's sensible, prudent, moderate. Not only is his body under control, but his emotions and impulses are under control as well. But look at Titus 2.2. Titus is to teach the people in the church that the older men, we'll get here in a couple weeks or so, the older men are to be sober. Then look at verse number 5. This is the, the uh, older women are to teach the younger women, verse 5, to be discreet, to be chaste, to be homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that they would be sober, discreet, that their minds would be like the minds of the older gentlemen. And thus, because it applies to older gentlemen and Titus and younger women, it applies to everybody, the whole church, church-wide, were to be disciplined, self-controlled, prudent, and, and all of those things. The principle applies to everyone. And then finally, the last and most perhaps important for the life of the church qualification is this, in verse number 9. He must hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict, especially convicting those who contradict. He has a devoted, strong attachment to the Bible. Okay? To, to Titus, it was to apostolic teaching. The New Testament wasn't finished yet. But now that the New Testament is finished, we can just boil that down to say, this guy's attached to the Word. You know, you're going to get sick and tired of me if you come and ask me questions. I'm going to give you Bible for answers. That's what I want to do. And I was doing that yesterday with somebody I was speaking with. Just turn, turn to Scripture. Turn back to Scripture. So what does God say about this matter? And that's what our, our we hold fast to the faithful word as he has been taught. Okay? The truth comes from God, and it's not an optional feature of our faith. We can't take it or leave it. You know, if somebody says, the new way of saying it, meh, about sound teaching, Meh, you know. That's a problem. That's a disqualifying problem. Meh just means, eh, whatever, you know, for my understanding. Who cares? You know, sound doctrine? No, doctrine divides. Forget that. We've got to love one another. On what basis do we love one another? We love everybody, even people that are disqualified or not professing faith in Christ in that same sense that we do believers? You understand, I think, what what I mean. This teaching has been passed down from one generation to the next to the next. It was passed to me, my responsibility to pass it to you, your responsibility to pass it to everybody else who can, our sons to pass it on to those that come after them, and so on. You must find faithful men to whom you can entrust the things of God who will be able to teach them to others also. That's 2 Timothy 2.2. We're not called to invent new material, or innovate the Christian faith because it does not require any improvements. You don't fix what ain't broken, right? Don't add, don't take away. We're not motivational speakers. We're not storytellers. Guess what? As stewards of God, we are preachers of the divine word. To go back to that heavy responsibility, that is heavy. That is important. For the church member... What does this mean? 
you know, you say, what's all this? Well, humbly seek this kind of pastor to lead your church. Speak especially to those perhaps that are online. Seek that kind of thing in your churches. And when he's doing his job, kind of like I'm doing right now, don't complain. Encourage, that's a good word. You know, when he's doing what he's supposed to be doing, don't give in to the temptation to itch the ears, right? You know, don't desire mere inspirational talks, highly repetitive, simplistic type of sermons, book reviews, movie reviews, or other fluff. That doesn't belong in the pulpit of God. The sound teaching is intended to instruct God's people, and so you're looking for an instructor, and you're thankful when he instructs you. Even as I was telling the men yesterday, passages like this with long lists of things, I know they can be kind of dry. And I'm not like, you know, the kind of guy that gets up and jumps up and down in the pulpit and all that stuff to keep you entertained. But I hope that by plain teaching, we will be fortified to be a church that pleases God. As boring as that might be to the people out in the world, who cares? Scriptural truth convicts us of sin. It trains us. It corrects us. It teaches us how to stay on the right path. And that's the job of the pastor. Notice that. He holds fast the word. He holds fast the word as he has been taught so that he can, by sound teaching, sound teaching, Okay? Not just preaching you know, the gospel over and over again. We have to do that too, but we have to teach the whole counsel of God. And then to convict those who contradict. And what tool do you use to convict those who contradict? Our brother Ben, I'll wake you up back there, brother, by saying something that you've said before. Basically, I'll adapt it in my words. You don't use the Bible to evangelize, and then abandon the Bible to talk about the defense of the faith or apologetics. This book is the basis for both the evangelism and the defense of the faith, which serve together to bring people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So we don't abandon the Bible. We don't use other means. We use the text of Scripture to expose the truth, to show somebody that they're wrong, to disapprove or correct a wrong action, and that's what the pastor has to do. Sound doctrine is the tool to do both tasks, exhorting and convicting those who contradict. So i just close very simply this morning. Paul gave Titus a very clear job description. Don't you like those? To set the churches of Crete in order. To do that, they needed one, good pastors, and two, sound teaching. When they have those two things, then they would be set for success. And those two things are what is needed by every church in every generation for every Christian. We never get over these requirements. They're eternally applicable. As long as the church exists, that will be the case. That's what God wants for his pastors. We do not... Uh, you know, give up on those or say, well, you know, the culture's different now. We've kind of figured out better, new methods, better ways. No, we have not. We have not. Yeah, God's very clear about this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help me to be this kind of pastor. 
the church to be the kind of church you want it to be with sound teaching, the members to be those who embrace both and are actively involved in propagating the truth to others. Lord, we love you and we thank you for giving us clear instructions. You know better than we do how we need them because we muddle things up so much that it's just good to have some plain old Bible teaching. Help us to follow it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.